All right, well, we are on week number three of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called Once Upon a Time, Myths About Dating, Sex, and Happily Ever After. And uh, it's a series that's all about relationships, right? We're exposing some of the myths uh, that get in the way of great relationships and marriages and that kind of thing and trying to replace them with God's truth and God's wisdom for how he wants us to live, for how relationships really do work best. Two weeks ago, we talked about the right person myth, right? This idea that if I only find, right, the right one, that my life will be blissful and happy and content and nothing will ever go wrong and we'll be together forever. It'll be just awesome, right? And we said, you know, that's that's not really exactly how it is. Uh, if you're looking to one other person to, to really bring about happiness and life and fulfillment and everything that you need in life, you will be disappointed at times because God's the only one that can do that. Last week, we talked about the whole try before you buy myth. We said it's so prevalent in our society, right, about the whole idea of, hey, let's, let's uh, move in together let's let's uh you know try out this relationship to make sure we're compatible let's let's do all this kind of stuff and we had talked about kind of the myth there and god's plan instead right uh for marriage and for what healthy relationship looks like i was talking with our growth group this week and some of the people in our group were just talking about how transformational last week's message was and i was like feeling pretty groovy i'm like really They're like it was life-changing I'm, I'm telling you what and so i'm like oh man these people are taking god's truth they're putting them into practice in their lives i mean how cool is that they said yeah we've been washing our raisins right and, and that kind of stuff they talked about we've cut out fig paste from our from our diets <laughs> if you have no idea what i'm talking about you should download the Night church apps. Yeah, I slid that in there and listened to the message from last week. <laughs> but it wasn't exactly what I was hoping for, but you know, it's, it's changed nonetheless. So today I want to tackle another uh, one of the myths that tends to get in the way of healthy and vibrant, lasting relationships. And I'm calling it the I am who I'm with myth, or the who I'm with or not is who I am. And this, uh, I see this play out. Uh, probably most clearly in two different extremes. The first one, uh, sometimes you see people that have quite uh, the hot girlfriend or wife, quite the stud of a boyfriend or a husband. They're great looking, they're friendly, they're popular, they're charming, they're winsome. Yeah, we're not talking about you guys, okay? <laughs> you can see some of the chest puffing out here. <laughs> no, no, but but they've got uh, quite the, the significant other, and they really find their value and and uh, their worth from being with that person, right? They, they, they tend to derive uh, their sense of value from just being with or being pursued by or being married to or being in a dating relationship with this other person. You know, it's that whole idea of I am who I'm with. I think on the flip side of that, sometimes you see the opposite uh, with people that maybe uh, feel rejected or isolated or unlovable or undesirable or unvaluable because they're not in a relationship with somebody like that. They derive their value from the fact that they do not have a drop-dead gorgeous significant other. Who I'm with or who I'm not with is who I am. It's a myth, and it impacts people's lives. I mean, I've seen this play out dozens and dozens of times. I mean, sometimes you'll see people, oftentimes young women, who have a, often who have right a distant or broken relationship with their father that go seeking after male attention elsewhere. We've never seen this, have we? Right. 
And they'll do whatever it takes. They'll take matters into their own hands because they need somebody to want them, to like them. They're desperately seeking after that, to love them, to want to be with them. And so they'll sacrifice their purity. Sometimes they'll wear provocative clothing to try and seduce or draw in young men. They may start going to bars, start going to parties. They may start drinking a little more than they used to because they must find that male attention because you are who you're with, they think. Or sometimes when you start to get a little bit older, maybe in your 20s or 30s or 40s, sometimes you'll see young men or women make some really foolish decisions about who they're with. They get impatient of waiting, tired of waiting for Mr. and Mrs. Wright. And, and they can't find somebody with that high character. They can't find another Christ follower that's interested in them. They can't find that person that they're compatible with, that really cares for them, that really could be best friends with them and walk with them for the rest of their life. They get impatient, so they lower the bar a bit. They settle for sex. They settle for just shacking up with somebody. They settle for maybe even somebody they don't really fully respect don't really have that much in common with. They'll settle for somebody that's not a Christ follower because they're tired of being alone, because they don't want to wait any longer, because they think their value and their worth comes from someone else. Ever see this kind of thing in the world that we live in? The myth that our value or worth or lovability comes from whoever it is that's interested in you, in you whoever it is that's pursuing you, whoever you know, is dating you or married to you. Well, today I want us to look at a story uh, from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It's a story about a couple known as Abraham and Sarah. Um, earlier in, in the story, their names are Abram and Sarai. We'll kind of look at this. But they, too, believed in a myth about their identity. Uh, and uh, they bought into it hook, line, and seeker. It's a little bit different cultural context, a different um, experience. Because in that day, instead of uh, you are who you're with, the, their understanding about identity was often you are, uh, your value and your worth rely on your ability to have children and to have a big family, this kind of thing, right? It's a different, different day, a different age, but this is the world that they lived in. Oftentimes in that culture, w young women were expected to marry when they were very young and provide sons and children for their husbands and for their country. Your lineage was a huge deal to men and women alike. This was your legacy. This was your purpose. There was no retirement or social security system in that day. So children is how you'd be taken care of in your old age. I mean, it mattered a ton. Women who were barren were sometimes thought to be rejected by God. It was a huge deal. A little bit different than uh, the context that we're talking about this morning, but I think that this myth is so similar, and there's so much in this story. I think God will, has plenty to say that will apply to us. We're going to look at three sort of lessons from this story. We're just going to walk through um, snippets from their story and learn some lessons as we go. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 15. You can follow along in version. There's notes and stuff in there. You can follow along on the screens as well. Genesis 15, 1 through 6 is where we're going to begin says this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abraham said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son 
who is of your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. And then he said to them, to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now this is in Old Testament language and in kind of theological language, this is known as the, the promise. It eventually, it, we'll see a little bit later, becomes the covenant. Uh, it's a big deal given to Abraham. But God says to Abraham and to Sarah, he says, I see you. He says, I care. I have chosen you. I have good plans for you. I'm your shield. I'm your protection. I'm your reward. And I will provide you with so many children and grandchildren and offspring that they'll be like the stars in the sky. How many stars are there in the sky? Shazam, right? Best guess is 100 trillion galaxies, each containing about 100 billion stars, right? Now, it's more metaphorical at this point, but he's saying, it, you're going to have so many kids, it's going to be like you can't count them all, right? That's, that's what God is going to give you. And he says, Abraham, trust me, God says, and I will give you a son. I'll give you what you long for. He says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that would be cool. It'd be pretty easy to believe God at that point, wouldn't it? The living God comes down and speaks to you and says, I'm giving you a son. You're in the prime of your life. It would be really easy to believe God at that point, wouldn't it? Be like, God spoke. I believe him. Okay, I'm on board, right? Boom. And then what happens? You want to guess? Nothing. So he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And he waits for decades, for years and years and years and years, and no son, no pregnancy. Every month, you can imagine, Sarah would probably get her hopes up. She would be expecting and wondering, is this going to be the month? But nothing. Every month, a painful reminder, no baby. I mean, it's, it's humiliating. It's painful. It would, it would certainly raise doubts in your mind. Like, God, did we hear you wrong? Are, are you unable to deliver on your promise? Have you forgotten us? What is going on? Remember that she and they and their culture believes that their worth and their value, even your blessings from God shows up in the form of children. And they have none. And so after months and months and years and years of waiting, after starting to question and starting to doubt and starting to wonder, you know, God, did you forgive me? Are you really able to provide? Are you really able to do what you said you were going to do? Sarah, Sarai, right, has a good idea, quote, quote. She decides enough waiting on God, enough of going with God's plans, enough of that, I'm going to do things in, on my own. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to maneuver, right? I'm going to provide a child for us myself. I got this. And this is where everything starts to go wrong in the story, all right? Uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 6 says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave or maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. So go sleep with my slave girl. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. 
And so after Abraham had been, Abram had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with her, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible. It's always the guy's fault, isn't it? I mean, you are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me, she says. To which Abram replies, your slave, this is passive Abram, right? Your slave is in your hands. He says, do with her whatever you think best. And so Sarai mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. First lesson I'm going to talk about today, the first thing I just want us to notice is don't take matters into your own hands, right? Now, this is, <laughs> stick with me because I'm not suggested, suggesting here that you become a slacker and just sit around and eat bonbons all day, right? But, but in, in the context that we're talking about here, don't take matters into your own hands. You see what's happening here, right? Sarai must have children. Her identity, her value in her mind is tied to her ability to have a family. And so she takes matters into her own hands. She gets ahead of God. And she goes way beyond the scope and the plan of God. And so she gets her maid, her servant, and she tells her to go and sleep with her husband. And so she does. And she... Uh, Again, in Sarai's perspective, she's thinking, go and do this, have a baby so that we can have a family together. Can't see that one blowing up in your face, can you? Can't see, can you see that one kind of going around like, does this really sound like a good idea? Like, are, is she really thinking this one through? No, but that's what happens, doesn't it? We get so focused on, I have to have this thing in order for my life to be full, in order for my life to have value and purpose. In our day and age, sometimes we'll say, I have to have somebody else to share it with. I have to have money sometimes. I have to have a position or a job or whatever. I have to have this thing right? This relationship, this satisfaction, this whatever, so that I'll be enough, so that I will be full enough, so that my life will be complete, so that my life will have purpose. And we will do the stupidest things sometimes to try and get that, won't we? We will do the dumbest things. And sometimes the same way that we have perspective on this side to look into the story and say, man, you've got to be an idiot. Are you really telling this to your husband? Is this really the best you got? Right? We can, in a similar way, sometimes we do stupid things and the people around us, they can see it, right? And they're saying to us, are you an idiot? This is not going to end up the way you think. Sometimes they'll even tell us, but because, but we are blinded by our own desire, our own need, right? For worth and value and whatever it is that we've set our hearts on. We've got the blinders on and we're like, man, why are these people dogging me? Why is everybody against me? Man, it could be the wisdom of God tapping you on the shoulder saying, this is a bad idea. Don't take matters into your own hands like this. Now, Abram here, Mr. Passive, he's an idiot too. Okay, can we just go on record and say that? He's an idiot. Sarai comes to him and says, hey, sleep with my servant so she can have our baby. And he's either so hungry for a child or perhaps so hungry for sex that he's like, okay, right? He's like the dumb guy, right, in this, in this whole story. He's like, that sounds like a good idea. Really? This is, now, just in case you think, hey, man, this would be pretty cool. Let me just say, this is not cool. This is not good at all. 
Can, can I give you just a snapshot? I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself, but let me just let me just give you a picture here because this this ends up to be one of the biggest messes in human history. This one act that's happening right here before us has probably caused more pain and more destruction, even more death perhaps than almost anything else in our world. I mean, it's unbelievable. So here's a snapshot of what happens. Uh, this servant, Hagar, goes and sleeps with Abraham. And wouldn't you know it, probably gets pregnant right away, right? First time, boom, she's, she's pregnant. Eventually, she has a baby. She names him Ishmael. Let's, let's remember that name. We'll come back to it. Now, we've already seen in the story the damage that it does between Abraham and, and Sarah, uh, Abram and Sarah, right? She's, the first thing she says is, boy, now there's this tension that exists between me and my servant. And, and whose fault is it? It's his fault. Why did you go along with a stupid idea, right? She despises me, and it's your fault. So you can already see tension. Now, that never happens in our relationships, does it? That when we do something stupid, it creates tension in the relationship. That when we step outside the boundaries of God's will, that we, we insert pain and tension and heartache into our own relationship. It totally does. It happens all the time. So there's marital conflict that's going on. There's broken trust that's happened. There's a whole heap of junk associated with that. Then there's this tension between Sarah and, or Sarai and Hagar, her servant. Clearly, there's anger and frustration, jealousy even from Sarai. And so she decides she's going to mistreat her servant. Well, that goes really well. So she runs away. There's bitterness. There's anger. There's all this kind of stuff. And as you follow the story through, you see that that anger and eventually that hatred that exists between Sarai and Hagar exists not only with them, but it gets passed on to their children, Ishmael, the son of Hagar, and Isaac, the son of Sarai, which we'll read about later, right? We're not quite there. That's why I said I'm getting ahead of myself. Now follow this through human history, right? The sons of Ishmael and his family, his lineage, become Arabs and Muslims in the Middle East. The sons of Isaac become who? Israel. Any tension exists in the Middle East, in the world, between Muslims and Jews, between the sons, right, the, between the, the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac? Man, I, I was thinking about it this weekend, thinking, man, these people have been feuding and at war and killing and hating for the last 6,000 years almost. I mean, how many have died? How much damage has been done? And do you know what all this destruction, all this bitterness, all this anger, all this jealousy stems back to? It stems back to this moment right here. A man and a woman are looking to something else other than to God for their identity. They must have a family. They must have a son. And so they get ahead of God and they take a shortcut. They can't wait forever. And so they go their own way. And just think about that for a minute. Think about how much pain and suffering would have and could have been spared from their lives and from their families' lives and from their country's lives if only they would have waited on God, if only they could have trusted in God for that which their hearts longed for, that which they, they thought they craved and needed. And likewise, I wonder how much damage, how much suffering happens in our worlds and in our relationships because we get ahead of God. How many poor choices get made? How many young women and men have given up their purity for that sake? 
They long for intimacy. They long for relationship and closeness with somebody else. They may even long to be a husband or a wife. And so they sleep with somebody rather than wait on God for the proper time. How many guys or girls have settled for someone less than God's best for them? How many people have settled for hooking up or shacking up when God had something infinitely better in mind? How many of us desire to experience God's blessing and provision in our lives and enjoy nice things, but rather than learning to manage our money wisely, rather than learning to to bring our money to God and let him teach us how to handle it well, we take matters into our own hands and accumulate huge piles of debt buying things that we can't afford. All because we got ahead of God. All because we couldn't wait on him to provide. How many times has somebody gotten sick of a job because they hate their boss or they're bored with the work or whatever else, and so they take matters into their own hands and quit rather than waiting on God and then had to walk through months and months and sometimes years and years of no paycheck and wondering how in the world they're going to provide because they got ahead of God. Man, they forced it. They panicked. How many hearts have been broken? How many people's self-esteem has been decimated? All because they got afraid. All because they got tired of waiting. And so we take action and get ahead of God. I wonder if you're in a season these days where God is asking you to wait and to trust him in some particular area in your life. To wait on his plan. To wait on his provision. It could be of a, a, a person It could be the provision of children. It could be the provision of a job or of money or whatever. God is often not early, but he is never late, friends. And I wonder today if God is nudging you and me right now saying, look to me. Would you bring your heartache to me? Would you wait on me and trust me to provide? Shortcuts, taking matters into your own hands, lowering the bar, it'll only lead to destruction and pain. Instead, God says, turn to me to find what you crave and long for and need. Let's go on. Uh, Genesis 17, second, second part here. It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, it's been decades, okay, since the original promise. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations out of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I'll give to you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be with them. I will be their God. Jump ahead to verse 15. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, but you'll call her Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nation. Kings of people will come from her. 
Abraham, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and he said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing too. And then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I'll make him uh, fruitful and will greatly increase his number. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you about this time next year. When he'd finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. All right, second thing I'm just going to hit, and this is sort of the theme for the day, so you're probably not surprised, but don't look elsewhere. Don't look anywhere else besides God for your identity. When we do so, it screws up relationships big time. I mean, there's a ton of great stuff in here uh, in that passage we just read, but something that caught my attention this week has to do with identity and purpose and value. Again, we talked about how in the culture that these guys are living in, uh, that Sarai and Abram themselves are looking for their identity and values from kids, from having children together. And as we see, and we see this kind of thing even in our culture, don't we? I mean, sometimes I'll see couples that have either had a hard time getting pregnant or uh, those that adopt, sometimes single moms or, or single dads, and they will set their gaze entirely on their kids. They will live for their kids. They will derive their value and their sense of love and worth and meaning is derived from being a mom or from being a dad. Now, the problem comes, right, when these kids become teenagers or eventually when they go to move out of the house, and it makes it terrible for some of these moms and dads, terrible seasons, when their whole world has been their kids, and they can't let go of them because without them, they have no purpose. Guys sometimes experience this, and women too, but guys especially with their jobs, right? They derive their, their purpose and their identity solely from their careers, from their jobs. They find their meaning and purpose and value from climbing the corporate ladder or whatever. And then comes a hard economic reality, and it shakes them to the core of their being because they've tried to find their value or worth in a job, and it just doesn't last. Sometimes we tie that sense of worth or value to other people like we've been talking about. Sometimes to possessions, sometimes to houses or cars that we drive or whatever. And when we do that, sooner or later, a crisis is coming and God will expose our need and he will draw us back home. I love how even when they've already blown it with this whole Hagar deal, even though they've got impatient, they screwed up, God is still gracious to them. But before God grants them the desire of their hearts, before God gives them and reminds them that he's going to give them a child and make a nation out of them, before any of that stuff, God appears to Abraham and he says, walk with me, Abraham. Look to me. Put your hope in me. Find your value and worth in me. And then he says, I will make a nation out of you. Then I will make you the father of many nations. Then I will be with your family and I will be their God and It'll be awesome, right? I'll make you like the stars in the sky. As a reminder of his promise, of his faithfulness, of this call to find their identity and their life in him, he says, I'm going to give you new names. Abram, I'm going to give you the name Abraham, which means father of many nations. And your wife is going to be called Sarah, 
which means father or, or excuse me, mother of princes and kings. And yes, of course, I'm going to keep my promise. Of course, I'll give you children. In fact, I'll bring redemption to the world through your offspring. All the nations of the earth will be blessed by you and your family. It's going to be amazing. But don't look to those things primarily to find your identity. Don't go after them. Don't, you know, don't pursue them like that. Look to me. He says, let me be your God and you'll be my people. Come and walk with me. Walk blamelessly before me. Let me show you how life can be. Find your identity in me. Find your value and your worth. Know that you're loved because of me, God says. Just bring this home for a second if I can. The order here that these things are in matters immensely. Follow me, God says. Walk with me. Find your identity in me first, he says. I am the Lord Almighty. Walk before me blamelessly, he says. Friends, some of us have been looking elsewhere to try and find our value. Maybe you've got nobody in your life right now and you feel rejected. And can I just say, if you are a Christ follower, if you have opened up your heart and your life to Jesus, then hear this, right? Hear this. You have been chosen by God already. You are not abandoned. You are not alone. You are not unlovable. Don't look to somebody else to try and find value and worth. Look to God. The promise that God gives to Abraham and to Sarah is not just the promise of having a baby, but it's a promise that a Savior even is going to come from them, a Savior that's going to be a blessing to the world, a Savior that's going to restore all things, that's going to bring people back home to the Father. It's a promise of a Savior that's going to come, a Savior that loves you and loves me so much that he would die to save us. He loves you that much. He would die so that you and God could be together. He would suffer so that you and I could be with him forever, so that we could be free from sin, and so that we could know life now and through eternity. He is your true love, friends, no one else. He is the only one that is always faithful, that is always loving, that is always true and always good. Sociologists have this theory called the looking glass self, and it means this. It's, it, it basically states that we become and we tend to believe what, whatever it is that the most important person in our life thinks, thinks we are. Does that make sense? We tend to believe and become like what the most important person in our life thinks we are. How our lives would change, man, if we truly believed that the living God, our creator, the one who spoke and everything came into being, the one that dreamed you up, right, in his brain, long before you were born, how our lives would change if we really saw ourselves the way he saw us, if we really understood that we are loved endlessly by God, if we really understood to the core of our being that we are valuable because we're made in his image. We have intrinsic value and worth. If we really understood that we, he loved us so much, I mean, the most important being in the universe, right? God thinks you're worth dying for. You think that'll change how we live? You think that that's enough to fill the hole in our hearts that longs for connection, that longs for something more? Absolutely. Why look anywhere else? Anytime we look to a human being to try and fill that void, it'll go south. It never works out. But the most important being in the universe says you are loved. 
You are chosen. You are highly valued. You're loved. God has good plans for your life, friends. Don't miss them. You don't need to look anywhere else but to him. Let's keep going. Uh, Genesis 8, or 18, I should say, 10, 14, says this. Now Sarah was listening to, at the entrance of the tent, uh, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah uh, were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, and then some, right? So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord Abraham is old, will I now have this pleasure of having a child, right? And then the Lord said to Abraham, why did your wife laugh <laughs> and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Listen to this. Is anything too hard for the Lord, he asks. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He says, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. That's the, the, the third thing I was just going to take from the story today is don't underestimate God, right? Don't underestimate. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I just love that last verse. God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son. He tells Sarah, you're going to have a son, and their response is to laugh. Why? Because it just doesn't seem humanly possible. He's 100 years old. She's 90 years old. They're like, yeah, not going to happen, God. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, but they laugh. They're like, is this even possible? This does not seem likely. From a human perspective, it's mind-blowing, right? Mind-blown. Right? We, we could never have a child. But God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And I think, man, how we need to hear that message today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Those of us that say, man, we could never be blessed with children. We couldn't afford to adopt. We, you know, we could never pull it off. We've looked at the numbers. It's simply impossible. I could never do that. I wonder if God would say, is anything too hard for the Lord? He's almost like double dog daring him, right? Is it, you think something's too hard for me, God's saying? Huh? You think that's too, too big, too beyond? Who, who, who created this world again, right? Who spoke and something came from nothing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Some of us might be in a huge financial mess, and we've got piles and piles and piles and piles of debt. Maybe we're students and we're accumulating piles and piles and piles and piles of debt. And we think, how in the world I'm going to be digging out from this forever, right? There's no way I can pull myself up and out of this mess. And I wonder if God wouldn't say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Some of us might be in a bad marriage and we're just like, man, it could never get better. Yeah, it's beyond hope. It's outside of the scope of what's possible. And I think God would say, is anything too hard for the Lord? And you might say, yeah, but you don't know my husband, right? He's like, you don't know my wife. You don't know my significant other. And I just think, man, really? Is that how much faith we have, right? God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? We may be here and be like, man, I'm alone, and I've been here 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years old, and I've got nobody. I'm not sure God could ever bring somebody into my life. Maybe we're a cat employee or 
someplace else and we have lost our jobs or we're afraid we're going to lose our jobs and we don't know how we're going to make it. We've got piles and piles of debt. We've got houses and car payments and all that kind of stuff. And we don't know how it's going to work out. But let me ask you, friends, is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you really think that God cannot do a miracle in your life? That the living God, the one who provided a child to Sarah and Abraham at 100 years old that brought forth a nation from them, that the living God could not break into your world, into your life, into your situation, into your relationships, do we really think that that's beyond God's scope, that that's beyond God's power? Is that how big your faith is in the God of the universe? Have you and I really stopped believing that it's possible? I'll never get married to a good person. I'll never find that person that I'm looking for. I mean, all my friends are are already married. I'm getting too old. Just is not going to happen. Do you really trust God to save your soul from hell, but not trust him to provide you with somebody to do life with? Man, is anything too hard for the Lord? After 30 years, God says, uh, by this time next year, Abraham and Sarah, you'll see it. You'll know it. You'll hold, hold that hope and that promise in your arms. And they do. Genesis 21 says this. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he, just as he said he had. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time that God had promised. Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Isaac means literally, he laughs, right? They give him a name that just is a constant reminder every time they see him, saying, we didn't think it was possible. I mean, when we heard it, I had no idea how this was gonna work. She, I was old, she was beyond childbearing, she was barren, seemed impossible at the time, but we're gonna give you the name Isaac to remind us every time we see you, to remind us every single time that nothing is too hard for the Lord. God is faithful. He is able. There is nothing too hard for him. Friends, I don't know where you're at with God this morning. Maybe you're new to this sort of walking of faith, this new relation, new to this relationship with Jesus stuff, and maybe this morning God is just prompting you and speaking to you and nudging you, urging you to open up your heart to him. Open up your life to him, to trust him, and to follow him. Learn what it's like to live as his son or daughter, that he would be with you and be your God, and you could be his son or his daughter. And maybe this morning, he's just prompting you, nudging you, just to open up your heart and life and just cry out to him, I need you. Would you come and lead and guide me? Would you come and be my God? Would you forgive me for trying to do it myself and try and go my own way and for my rebellion and junk and sin and all the ways I've screwed up, would you make me new and bring me back home? If you've never done that before, I'd encourage you to do it today. Maybe the truth be told, you've been looking elsewhere to somebody else to try and find your value and worth, to try and find uh, and fill that feeling of emptiness and that feeling of being rejected or unloved or unvaluable. You've been trying to find that in somebody else. And maybe this morning, God is just drawing your eyes and your heart back to him and saying, man, I love you. I'm crazy. Don't look elsewhere to try and find who you are. Look to me, God says, and let me tell you, who you are. Let me tell you whose you are. I have loved you. I have chosen you. I have great plans for you. Maybe 
Maybe this week we just need to start hitting our knees and turning back again to the God who made us and letting him speak through his spirit and through his word, opening up his book and reading a little bit about who we are, about who he says we are, because friends, you are of infinite value to the God of the universe. You are loved. You matter. I don't know, maybe you're here and uh, maybe uh, the truth be told, you've been taking matters into your own hands <laughs> in ways like what we read in the story, or maybe you're tempted to these days. You're tired of waiting. You're tired of living without, and you're tempted just to go out and do it yourself, right? Maybe you lower the bar a little bit. Maybe you just hook up with somebody or whatever to kind of get what you think you need. And friends, if that's you, maybe this morning God is prompting you to wait on him, to fulfill his promise, to provide for you who and what it is that you need according to his good and perfect will. Maybe there's something else going on in your life and it's a rough season for you. And maybe you feel hopeless or overwhelmed. Maybe you've just sort of given up on someone or something, and maybe today the living God is just speaking and reminding you afresh, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Maybe today God's trying to bolster your faith and turn your eyes back to him, the living God, the creator, the miracle worker, and maybe today it's time just to come back and put your hope in him. Maybe it's time to pray to him, to invite him into to work in your life, in your relationships, in your marriages, in your job, in your financial situation, or whatever, to look and to put your trust in him. I'm not sure what God's prompting you to do today, but that's, that's, what, that's what we need. He's the one we need. He's the one we long for. He's the one we need to look for. Let's just end uh, today just in prayer and uh, just turn our hearts and our eyes towards him to fill us and to speak and to minister and to, to work. Let's, let's pray together. God, that is our cry this morning. We look to you, God. We need you. Forgive us for the times that we have gone our own way, that we've tried to work things out on our own, that we've looked to other people or things to try and find our identity and value and worth rather than to you, God. Forgive us. Lord, I think many of us in the room probably are living with the pain that it comes from that, all that kind of stuff. And I pray today by your spirit that you would just draw us back home, that you would make us new, that you would breathe hope and life into us again, that you would speak by your spirit and your word this week and remind us of who we are in you, that we are loved and valuable and chosen, and that you have great plans for us. Help us not to settle for less than your best. Teach us to walk with you and to be your kids and that we could know your presence and that you would be with us and be our God. We love you, God. We need you. We open up our hearts and lives to you and just pray, come, Lord Jesus, come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.